Welcome to How Hard Can It Be? Up close and personal with the real people behind the hits and misses in Boston's venture capital big time. My name is Mike Triano, and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer of Actifio and a limited partner in Boston's own G20 Ventures. You can follow me on Twitter at MikeTrap and check out my Medium blog at MikeTrap.com. Each week, we'll be getting to know one of the luminaries in our local startup community and drill into a specific area of their expertise for the benefit of other entrepreneurs and investors. My guest this week is Kevin Bitterman, a partner in Polaris Partners Boston office. Kevin joined Polaris in 2004 to focus on investments in healthcare after playing a key role in getting Sirtris Pharmaceuticals off the ground while a graduate student at Harvard Medical School. What was that role? Well, it depends who you ask. When Kevin was asked by the Boston Business Journal, he said, quote, I deserve next to no credit for the tremendous accomplishments that they've had there. Uh, his team had a different view. All you have to do is read Kevin's PhD dissertation, said lead investor Terry McGuire. He was a co-discoverer of Sirtris science and a big reason for their success. Sirtris was acquired by drug giant GlaxoSmithKline in 2008 for $720 million. Now, trust me when I tell you a VC who downplays their role in a startup success is the rarest of creatures indeed, and Kevin's atypical humility is one of the things that, that's made him a go-to guy on the Boston biotech scene. In his time at Polaris, Kevin also co-founded Geneseo Biosciences uh, and was the founding CEO of Editas Medicine, uh, which are both listed on the NASDAQ now, uh, Morphic Therapeutic, and Vistera. He currently represents Polaris as a director at Editas, Inseal Medical, Geneseo Biosciences, Cala Pharmaceuticals, Morphic Therapeutic, Neuronetics, Taris Biomedical, and Vets First Choice. Kevin's also active in the local life science and healthcare startup community, serving on the Scientific Advisory Board of the Massachusetts Life Science Center, and with me as a board chair of the New England Venture Capital Association. He has a BA summa cum laude from Rutgers University and a PhD in genetics at Harvard Medical School. In this week's second segment, Kevin and I talked about how cutting-edge biotech companies like the ones he's been involved in get off the ground, how they emerge from our great universities to create companies that have collectively saved millions of lives. His answer is nothing like the way most people think of VC, and even different from the technology venture model some of us know so well. Uh, Kevin and I live in the same town in the western suburbs and have spent a few dad's weekends down in Mohegan Sun, which will most definitely not be discussed in this podcast. I know him to be a family man of great kindness, talent, and intelligence, and it was a pleasure spending a little time getting under what makes him tick. All right, I want to make it a point this week to please ask you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Overcast, or Pocket Cast, and especially consider giving us a quick five-star review on iTunes. It really helps spread the word about what we're doing here, and I would both sincerely and personally appreciate the love. Now, Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio, the world's leading enterprise data-as-a-service platform. Deliver your data just like your applications and infrastructure as a service available instantly anywhere. For hybrid cloud, faster DevOps, and better business resiliency, Actifio is radically simple. Here now, my conversation with Kevin Bitterman. All right. With me today is Kevin Bitterman. Hello, Kevin. Hey, Mike. Thanks How for, are you? Very well. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming out to uh, Actifio. So we're both uh, Sudbury natives. We are indeed. Flying the flag of the Bury proud here yeah. in uh, here in Waltham. Um, so I uh, want to help people kind of get to know your story a little bit. Where did you grow up? Jersey. I'm a Jersey guy. Jersey? What exit? 
Yeah, I'm not. I'm, I'm in the weird part of the state where we can't answer that question. It's it, kind of it's kind of sad. It is the Garden State, you know. It is the Garden State, and I'm a Giants fan, so I've uh, I've had a, some fun years up here and some not so fun years. Up right, there. the the New Jersey Giants, as Bruce Springsteen would call yeah, them. Exactly. And uh, what kind of environment was it? A you know rural, leafy suburb kind of a place, or more yeah. more urban? Yeah, cows and 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 very rural. So it was Northwest uh, Jersey, not too far from the Delaware Water Gap. So. Right, and uh, siblings. Uh, older brother. He's a, he's a physician, lives in upstate New York now. We used to hate each other. We hate each other slightly less now. <laughs> what was it like growing up there? Uh, it was great. Um, good family, very normal childhood, I would say. Got it. Where'd you go to school? Uh, so stayed in Jersey for undergrad, uh, went to Rutgers, um, met my wife there, which is probably the biggest accomplishment uh, uh, I had in, uh, in, in, in college. Uh, and then, uh, you know, moved up here in 99. So finished college and was uh, not smart enough to go get a job at the peak of the, uh, the bubble in the job market. And so decided, uh, since I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do with my life, I'll go to more school. So I uh, came up here for graduate school in 99. What did you uh, study in undergrad? So biology, my, my, I joke about my brother, we've actually been very close and, and uh, sort of followed his passion for science and, and biology in particular, but um, realized along, um, while in college that uh, the, the medical path wasn't for me. I actually got much more interested in uh, doing research and lab work. So I worked in a, in a lab undergrad, actually did a, uh, spent some time working for Pfizer, um, uh, actually before it was Pfizer, uh, as an undergrad, and then um, again got intrigued by um, continuing down that path, uh, and uh, so started applying to uh, some PhD programs, um, which is uh, in molecular biology and, and genetics, which is uh, what brought me up to this part of the world. Where did you get your graduate degree? Uh, Harvard Medical School. And what's, in, what's, what's it in? So it's uh, it's in genetics, but you know I studied broadly molecular biology, cell biology. Huh. Did you read the gene? Uh, I have not read that yet, but I hear it's very. Oh good. God! I, I mean, yeah. for a layman, it's like amazing. Yeah, I, it's, I it's fascinating because it tells the it tells the story chronologically of yeah. like you know Mendel and like yeah. it takes you all the way up to the present. It's a remarkable book. So. You know, to what did you aspire? Like, did you want to be a doctor or a geneticist or like what what, no, what my, was going on? Yes, yeah, so my, my life path is defined by the fact that I never had any idea what I wanted to do with myself. So <laughs> it's a random walk. Yeah, through, uh, yeah. It, it was a bit of a random walk. I, uh, you know, I decided uh, as an undergrad that uh, I like biology, so started wandering down there and. Again, towards the end of uh, undergrad, decided I uh, didn't want to join the workforce, so uh, keep doing more school. And, and actually, one of the draws of Harvard Medical School was there's literally hundreds of different investigators um, doing incredible work. And so a lot of people, when they go to grad school, they know exactly what they want to do. They know exactly who they want to work with. Again, I had no idea, uh, so I figured it was a nice opportunity to uh, get exposure to a lot of interesting areas of science, to um, a lot of world-renowned researchers. Um, <coughs> And then again, I, I went and did something uh, which, in retrospect, was probably really dumb. There's you know a bunch of Nobel Prize winners and well-established lab, and I guess um, maybe um, uh, a little bit prescient, I, I jumped into a startup lab, and so uh, a. Uh, investigator at Harvard who had just finished his postdoc and, and was launching his own lab, so had no name recognition, didn't even have a lab at the time. Actually, we were sort of sharing a little bench on the end of uh, someone else's lab while they uh, built his out. Um, but I think it, it sort of uh, it, it speaks to the fact, and, and this will be a recurring theme, that I love that startup atmosphere. There's, there's kind of nothing like it. So he was a young, passionate uh, PI that uh, uh, convinced me that uh, we were going to change the world with the, the work 
what we were doing. And, um, you know, I was excited enough to be the first person, uh, first grad student to, uh, to, to join his lab. What do you think is more valuable now, the, your depth of understanding of science that came from the experience at Harvard Medical or the network of relationships that you built there? You know, um, uh, I think it's, it, it might actually be something else, which is um, uh, I, I think something that I learned um, both from my, my, my PI, the investigator's lab I worked in, who's David Sinclair, and a lot of the great people I worked with was um, more the general sense of, you know, how to think about problem solving, how to tackle big, meaty problems. Um, and that's, you know, it's really what research is. You're uh, kind of doing, um, you you're feel a little bit like an investigator um, with these intractable issues that uh, people around the world are trying to crack. And it's, it's, it's this, uh, this thrilling race to see who can crack it first and who can solve the problem first. And to do that, you're, you know, you're designing experiments, you're building models, you're, you, and you're trying to kill things uh, that, that don't work as quick as possible. So this, this sort of paradigm of how to, um, how to think about problems and, and attack them, I think that sort of structure of thinking is something that you can take into you know, many different areas and is something I use quite a bit today. You know, to those of us on the tech side of things, um, it's a, it's, um, it's a very foreign world in some ways. It, do you, is, it, is it powered by a sense of mission and goodwill? Is it the puzzle and that intrigues people? Is it fame and glory? What, what, is, the, what is the engine of, yeah. of healthcare and life sciences innovation? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, and it's, it is certainly different for different people. And uh, uh, where we are, uh, where I am today at a firm called Polaris Partners, and to fast forward a little bit, um, you know, we like to talk about uh, doing well by doing good. And so we're, you know, we're an investor uh, in the healthcare space. Um, and our job is to, you know, return capital to our limited partners who have entrusted us as, as stewards of their capital. Um, um, but we think uh, along the way, um, uh, well, let me say it a different way. We don't set out when we make investments to say, how can we make the most money as fast as possible when we're making this investment? Um, we set out to back great entrepreneurs, build great companies that can develop important medicines. Um, and, you know, history has shown if you do that, um, uh, you can do well, uh, you can do good and do well uh, at the same time. So uh, I think that is actually a driver for a lot of people in this industry because, and, and it kind of has to be both going back to, you know, graduate school, doing work in the lab, um, and in, in venture in general and entrepreneurship in general, most things don't work. Um, a, a frighteningly high degree of things don't work. And so you need to deal with constant failure, sometimes almost on a daily basis. Um, uh, and so there needs to be sort of a mission uh, and something driving you inside to, to, to keep going and to be able to navigate through that. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Like, I never thought about it, but there is, at the end of the day, um, unlike in tech, there is an objective standard of benefit. So, like, if a bunch of people decide that Snapchat is awesome, it's awesome. Yeah. Um, but, but in your business, you know, the cancer cells die or they don't. I mean, the, the, yeah. that's a little bit of, you know, hyperbole. But, yeah. but uh, there is that ob objectivity to it. And, and you're saying that, that over the long haul, over the scale of a venture fund, certainly, yeah. um, the return is correlated to that objective benefit. Yeah. We, I mean, we, when we present the firm, we, we, we have a slide that shows all of our exits and uh, the, uh, the, 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 the good we've done the, or how well we've done financially. Um, we have a slide that shows um, 
how many therapies have actually made it to market over the 20 years that Polaris has been around, and it's over 20 now. Actually, had another FDA approval this week for a product, um, and uh, we we've we've estimated how many lives that those have touched um, based on the number of patients per year and cumulative lives, um, and it's you know it's over 100 million um, uh, at this point. So that's you know that's that's pretty gratifying. Yeah, gets you out of bed. Gets you out of bed on the now the great cold February day. Now the great irony of all this, and I, this will take the conversation in a different direction. We probably don't want to go, but uh, if you did a, a public opinion poll on Snapchat versus Pfizer, guess which is going to have the more favorable uh, opinion? Sure. And so there's this whole issue of kind of the demonization, which some of it, you know, for for justifiable reasons. But um, you know, the, uh, the 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 biopharma industry in general has a has a big image problem. It does, and and you know, for every cancer cancer cure, there is an epipen. You know, yeah. and um, uh, is there something fundamentally different about the current climate? With respect to that, I mean, I, I, people have to be sensitive at some level to yeah. appearances, particularly, you know, where you know who knows what they're going to replace the Affordable Care Act with. But, yeah. but um, I don't know. It's, it's got to be a strange time in that respect. Yeah, it is, and there's a lot of discussion about it. And I think the unfortunately there are a, a, a small number of kind of bad actors that are. You know, you read about this all the time, taking a very old drug and, and, and sort of spending a little bit of money to reformulate it and then jacking up the price 6,000-fold. Um, that's, that's, you know, that's the exception to what most of the industry is actually doing, which is true innovation. Um, but uh, there's, a, there's, there's obviously a, a, an effect that uh, uh, sort of muddies the water for, uh, for everyone. So um, there is a, a focus on sort of shining the light on those type of activities um, and shining another different kind of light on what you know, most of the industry is doing, which is focusing on innovation, focusing on truly differentiated med- medicines that can you know, solve some of the biggest needs that we're all going to face in the, in the next few decades. So, um, but I think I honestly believe that you're going to see a lot of um, self-governance uh, in the industry because I think there's a lot of smart people working uh, working in this industry and um, they can uh, sort of play forward uh, uh, where this goes um, if they don't start um, self-governing. And so you're starting to see that with some companies coming out and you know putting caps on their own price increases and all of that. So I, I think you'll continue to see that and um, you know to the benefit of everyone. That's good. All right, so let's go back to... Um uh, the end of graduate school, and you get involved in this incubator. You know, obviously, you know, you mentioned this, but you, you have an affinity for startups. What, what do you think that's about? What is it about the early stage stuff that you find compelling? Yeah, there's, um, and and for anyone that's um, been in the environment, you'll immediately know, and it's it's kind of kind of like that old Harley Davidson t-shirt if I have to explain it you wouldn't understand um, <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's there there's there's a feeling uh, that you have as being part of a, a founding team where there's you know three or four people or uh, everyone's wearing a thousand different hats um, you're all rolling up your sleeves uh, you know the CEO of the company is um, you know doing invoices and and uh, uh, everyone's just rallying together everyone's rowing in the same direction it's um, uh, there's this sense of camaraderie that's uh, that's again it's it's hard to explain, but there's also this sort of kinetic energy about it that there's you can't match it. Yeah, um, same as in tech. 
Yeah, and yeah, I, I, I'm sure it is. Yeah. I'm sure it is, and um, um, and it becomes you know it becomes addictive. There's there's this adrenaline rush that comes with that, and it's and it's so hard and it's so daunting. And you know, again, you're there's failure around every corner, but I, I think that's part of the adrenaline rush when you can work through these things with a group of people that you like and you trust, and come out the other end. Um, it's a wonderful thing to look back on, and then you kind of have amnesia about all the bad parts, and you want to go do it again. Yeah, selective memory. Yeah, it's like exactly. it's like uh, having babies. I think it's <laughs> exactly right. um, so um, uh, did anything interesting come of this first startup yeah so so the path out of grad school um, I actually uh, uh, you know it, it, to this point of most things failing I you know I had a few projects going in in graduate school a bunch of them failed a couple of them actually worked and um, you know attribute that to luck more than anything else but I realized at some point that um, you know as I peered down the the traditional academic path which is you go to a postdoc after you uh, graduate, and you know that kind of just felt like resetting the clock on on your uh, on your PhD. Um, so I started to explore you know alternative careers, uh, and um, uh, at the time, um, you know if I if I went to talk to the the whatever it was called the career guidance office at Harvard Medical School, and, and you said you didn't want to do a postdoc, they'd kind of look at you quizzically and said, okay, well, don't do an academic postdoc, go do a postdoc in industry, which is like maybe a 10-degree uh, turn off of the, uh, uh, the traditional path. But if, you started, if I started to dig around, um, you started to hear other avenues of people with advanced degrees going into management consulting, going you know into things like patent law and, and a you know a series of other things. You heard about entrepreneurship and and venture capital, but um, it was actually hard to find a lot of people that could give you insight into that. But I got intrigued by the the business side of science because we were doing some work in the lab that was actually very translational. Um, so it wasn't basic research. Um, there was some basic research, but ultimately we followed that to a point where you could see some therapeutic applications potentially of what we were doing. Um, and uh, I was intrigued by, you know, what comes next. And I knew nothing about business. And so going back to undergrad, never took an economics course or an intro business course. So I'm always kind of fascinated by things that are black boxes to me. And um, uh, as I sort of sifted through these different opportunities, um, the one that seemed interesting at the time was actually management consulting. Um because people presented that as um, it actually seemed like business school, but you get paid. Uh, so you go for a couple of years mm. for the most part. Um, you build a terrific network. You know, a lot of these places have great sort of brand recognition as well. Um, and uh, and you get a phenomenal training and kind of introduction. And, and a lot of these firms love the unmolded lump of clay uh, uh, that, you know, comes out of a, an advanced degree. And I think they also look for that problem-solving um, uh, capacity that they talked about earlier. So I... I Went through the interview process with one of the big uh, consulting firms and kind of surprised myself to accept uh, accept an offer. Um, was all set to move back to Jersey, which my mom was thrilled about. And then um, uh, it just so happened some uh, investors started hanging around our lab, interested in some of this translational work, and they uh, decided to start a, a biotech uh, around it. And uh, I uh, I sort of raised my hand and said, you know, let me work for free while I was, I had a few months before I was graduating and then was, you know, going to go start this consulting gig. So uh, one of the partners who was at Polaris at the time, where I am now, uh, became the main investor. And um, uh, I sort of sidled up to him and just wanted to sort of absorb as much as I could through him, uh, through Diffusion on, you know, company formation. And, you know, he had started some 
very big, well-known companies. Um, uh, and uh, so I had a few months to work with him. And uh, I think he, uh, you know, he saw me as a uh, wanted to figure out a way to keep me working for free for the company. I think was the uh, smart uh, guy. He was smart, very smart guy. Yeah. And so he introduced me to some of the uh, other folks at Polaris. And I was really uh, too stupid to know I was actually being interviewed. So I was very relaxed. And um, uh, long story short, I, I wound up uh, getting uh, being very fortunate and getting an offer to join the team uh, at Polaris, even though I knew nothing about venture capital. Um, and um, uh, sort of weighed for a little bit this, you know, doing consulting or, or joining this venture firm. And for me, it was, it became a, a pretty obvious choice um, when I learned about the type of things that Polaris did much closer to the science. And um, uh, again, this idea of uh, repeatedly starting companies out of the ether was was very intriguing to me. And it, it allowed me to spend another year or so helping get this company off the ground that uh, that had come out of the lab I was in. So yeah, so that was that was the path. So which partner was that? At the- uh, Chris, Christoph Westfall, who actually um, was a very smart man. He left to run the company, which was called Sertris, uh, and uh, they were they were acquired by a big pharma company a couple of years later. You know, reflect on those early days. This is your first taste of understanding what the role of an investor is in a in a you know funded startup like that. What did what did you learn from Christoph in that first year? Yeah, so most of my time with Christoph was really focused on the Nuco and. Uh, you know, uh, as opposed to what it means to be an investor, and, and most of that I learned from Terry McGuire, and can can talk about that. But you know, Christoph is um, very good at um, uh, building a, a, a an incredibly exciting story around very exciting science, and so um, this was science, sort of the the cellular biology of aging, and how can we <clears throat> create drugs that can address some of the diseases of aging. It was very early science. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, he created a great sense of enthusiasm, brought in great investors, uh, recruited a terrific team uh, to, to that company. Um, so, uh, you know, I think a, a lot of what I learned uh, there was, um, you know, very quickly you learn how important the people are and uh, uh, that at the end of the day, um, uh, I don't know what the split is between, you know, people and science, but it's incredibly heavily weighted towards having the right team. Much rather have a, a good team with bad science and, and vice versa. Um, uh, so, uh, so learned a lot about uh, team building, um, pulling a story together, creating a vision. You know how to think about culture early on in these companies was incredibly important. Um, and then you know, so it was a great time helping get that company off the ground. And then I, you know, ultimately uh, sort of moved into a more traditional associate role at uh, Polaris, where you know I was very very fortunate to work. Uh, uh, with a, a legendary investor, Terry McGuire, who had, had found in the firm. Definitely want to dig into that aspect of it. But, but um, you know, in the context of this sort of idea of an objective, of objective value, that's, that's surprising to me. You know, I, I, um, you know if, you, if you have a technology that can, you know, manufacture insulin artificially, right, the team doesn't really matter, right? You, yeah. you know, you can go, you're going to go run the world. Like, yeah. why is the team trump the science when it comes to building a, a successful, you know, healthcare business. Yeah, it comes back to the fact that um, you know this. This is how easy can it be? Uh, how hard is, can is it be? How yeah. hard can it be? Yeah. Excuse me. It's really, really hard yeah. <laughs> to uh, to yeah. build. Again, I'll, I'll speak to biotech because it's what I know best. But um, I don't know of any. You know, and, and Polaris has been around for a long time. We've had many exits, many successful companies. Uh, many multi-billion dollar companies. I don't know of one of them that was a straight up rocket ship. Sure. Um, and I, 
I know that most of them had near-death experiences at least once, often multiple times. Uh, and so um, the science, even if the science is exceptional, um, it is extraordinarily hard to translate that into uh, into a drug, into a medicine. Right. Um, there's so many things that can go wrong at every turn, um, and, and some of them almost certainly do. So having a team that um, has thought in ahead about each of those things that can go wrong and has contingency plans and doesn't just have plan B in their black back pocket. They've got plan C, D, and E in their back pocket uh, as well. Um, those are the companies that survive the bad times and, and can emerge and, and can thrive. And you know, like one portfolio company, um, which, which is an investment Terry made back in the late 90s, was a, a company uh, that is called Ironwood right now. And you may have actually seen some of their commercials on TV for this drug, Linzess, which unties these knots in your stomach. Yeah, actually, sure, actually sure. Actually, some of the better direct-to-consumer advertising I've seen. But that drug is helping um, uh, hundreds of thousands of patients uh, today. Um, and uh, Terry helped start the company. The company, when it was started, was called Microbia. Um, had nothing to do with GI disease or anything to do with what, what they're doing today. But it was started by a, a postdoc out of MIT named Peter Heck, um, who also had, you know, had no business experience, just coming out of the lab. And uh, he took over as CEO of this company. And unlike a lot of people in our world, he didn't say, I'm going to you know, build this company and then sell it to Pfizer, or I'm going to um, you know, try to uh, get an exit. And he said, I'm, I just want to create a drug. I never want to sell this company. Um, my goal is to create a medicine. And, and you know, it's almost probably 20 years later since he started the company. Uh, and they did that. He uh, you know, was one of our few companies that um, have a medicine. But the initial premise of the company totally did not, completely did not work. It was microbia, it was around antimicrobials. But he, Peter, built such an exceptional team um, uh, uh, that they were able to navigate these, you know, pitfall after pitfall, uh, you know, and emerge today as a, you know, a, a, a fully integrated pharmaceutical company, which is pretty extraordinary. Right. So use an automotive metaphor, the science is the engine, but Without the transmission of extraordinary management, the car doesn't move. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So you got you got to have both of those things. That's exactly right. All right. So talk about talk about the investing side. You know, um, what when you look at an investment, um, what are you looking for, and and what does it take to get to the threshold? I mean, you look at you know hundreds of deals a year, right? And you do yeah. one or two, maybe. Yeah. Um, Help people understand that process and and how you approach it. Yeah, it was interesting when I so when I first joined the firm, um, I had you know the the learning curve was was vertical, right? I, I had no idea um, and uh, what I was doing other than if I got a business plan, I could skip to the science section and maybe um, read some papers and, and understand the science pretty quickly. Um, but uh, you know the rest of it was um, was was completely alien to me. Um, but what happened was, you know, I joined the firm and I, I got a giant stack of business plans on my desk and, and just started sifting through those. And I didn't realize at the time that these were all of the sort of random incoming things that there was a very low likelihood of Polaris ever doing. But it was sort of a training set and helped me build my filters. And as I went through those and figured out ones that I thought were interesting and talked to some of the other partners and got feedback over time, and it's, and it's over a lot of time, many, many, many months and probably a couple of years before I even had sort of that filter set right, you start to learn, um, you know, how does the firm think about what is important and what isn't important? How do you think about, um, you know, the technology, the intellectual property, the competition, the, you know, the market size, and of course the people. Um, uh, but that, so it takes a lot of time to start to build that. And ultimately, 
you sort of understand how the firm thinks about it, and then over time you start to involve, really evolve your own set of what's going to get you excited um, based on um, you know things that have worked for you, and more often things that you've been involved in that haven't worked. But I'll uh, you know again, I, I hate to keep hammering home on this point, but there's one anecdote that will always stick with me. Um, so I was. You know, as a, a young associate, and um, I was uh, invited to join a, a pitch with with Terry, uh, who was my my mentor, and um, uh, I uh, I got some materials on the company beforehand, and I you know probably stayed up all night studying them, reading every paper I could, trying to understand every aspect of the the disease area they were focused on, and you know I was I was ready for um, you know the the the, uh, the the chat with Terry afterwards to tell him what I thought. So we had the meeting, you know, they pitched it, and. Uh, you know, Terry, we sit down afterwards and, uh, you know, I'm ready to dive deep into the science and the background and everything. And Terry just looks at me and he says, would you back that guy? And kind of totally blindsided me. Um, uh, and I, cause I hadn't even thought about it through the whole meeting, through anything else. I mean, I'd looked at the team's track record and everything, but that wasn't the question he was asking. It was more, uh, a more, um, a, a softer point of, is that someone that, um, you know, you would put significant money behind and want to, you know, be a partner with for, for many, many years. Um, and, you know, it's it's that way of thinking about it. I think Terry probably decided five minutes into the meeting of, yes, this is a guy that I'd, you know, want to be a partner with or not. Um, so it's it's sort of new, a lot of nuanced things like that that just take a lot of time to, uh, to pick up. Huh. That, that's very interesting to me. I mean, if you... Um uh, I mean, I don't even have to ask it the, the question. Like, if you had a guy that 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 didn't seem like that, but but the science was incredible, you know, you'd you'd pass. It sounds like we often would. Although, you know, again, a, a big part of our role is people collecting, and so um, uh, if there's an extraordinary opportunity, you know, and there's an individual there, we may think about. Um, how do we compliment this person? How do we surround? How do we try to set them up for success? Now, what's really important there. And I think the you know the best trait of an entrepreneur is to know where their blind spots are, um, and uh, you know we we have when we can get to it later this theme of repeat entrepreneurs that we work with again and again, um, and there's this trust and uh, this relationship uh, 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 over many years, um, but we're always backing first time entrepreneurs and every great entrepreneur and CEO was was a first timer at one point, um, uh, and the best quality we see in them is that they don't think they know everything, right. um, that they understand um, where their liabilities are, and they uh, they go out and they hustle and they're, you know, are willing to recruit people to, to compliment people that have been there and uh, and done that. So, um, so yeah, so that's that's one of the biggest things that we look for. Yeah, you need, you need, you know, famously you need intensity, but you need humility as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my favorite analogy for what a good VC does is, is um, a producer, that, mm-hmm. you know, when you have a film... You know, you have a script and, and you got to attach that to a director and bring in, you know, a cast and find distribution and financing and and you put that together and, and, you know, even if you do a good job of all that, you know, some, you know, finite percentage of films actually work and then some percentage of those actually yeah. make money and yeah. and uh, that that's, uh, I always like that metaphor for I the think I think it's right. Unlike... You know Jerry Bruckheimer or somebody though where we like being behind the scenes and <laughs> yeah. put the put you know the real stars are the are the entrepreneurs and, and and they deserve to be but but yeah I think it's a it's a it's a good analogy. So you know right now, um, uh, what are you involved in? I know you're very excited about everything you're involved in, but uh, what are a couple things that stand out in terms of projects uh, or companies yeah. that you're you're participating in or. Um, that uh, that that people might be interested in knowing more about. 
Yeah, sure. So um, you could talk about a couple of different stages, um, maybe. So um, so I was I was fortunate to be involved in helping start a company a few years ago called Editas Medicine in the in the gene editing space. Um, uh, and this was classic, very uh, exciting, very new area of science. Uh, at the time when we were pulling the company together in 2013, um, and uh, a, a space with no shortage of controversy, uh, as um, some listeners listeners may be aware of, if they even follow biotech remotely. I think this is in the general. People are in touch with, um, you know, should rich people be able to make their kids smarter? Type <laughs> questions. Like I, mean, I think that is. It's safe to assume that yes. everyone has yeah. seen something about that. You know? Yeah. So so yeah, and that wasn't even the controversy I was referring <laughs> to. Although I did when we started the company, the first question I got asked by the the Boston Globe when we launched the company was around designer babies, and we were we were prepped for that. And um, uh, actually, it's it's been so it's been in a really interesting week in this in this uh, in this space. Um, uh, both uh, touching on both of the real controversies. One is the um, uh, the, the NIH. Um, I believe it's the NIH who put out these guidelines around sort of the uh, the ethics of using gene editing, and there was a lot of concern that they might overly restrict use of this technology, which would prevent it from doing what uh, what uh, most are, people are trying to use it for, which is curing incurable genetic diseases. Right. Um, so, you know, making blind kids be able to see again and um, saving a lot of lives um, uh, with an approach. Um, and for those that aren't aware, this is the ability to go in and make changes to the genetic code, so cut out disease-causing mutations or potentially someday even, you know, rewrite and correct uh, disease-causing mutations with a with a healthy um, sequence, uh, and uh, huge potential and a lot of excitement in this area. But it does raise ethical questions, of course. Sure. Um, which uh, which we've been very cognizant of since we started, and one of the big uh, criteria. Um, so I, I was uh, was the founding CEO of the company, and when I. Uh, you know, the, the big criteria to fire myself and find the replacement was to find someone that was very thoughtful about that in particular, in addition to all of the complexity of drug development. And we have a, a wonderful woman named Katrine Bosley running the company uh, who's, uh, who's been very thoughtful. And uh, a Sudbury uh, neighbor of ours, Tim Hunt, who's uh, uh, at the forefront of thinking about these issues with, uh, with Katrine. At the Warriors yes. everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, again, a wonderful, wonderful team there. But there was a, uh, a, uh, some guidelines that came out this week that, um, you know, I think were very good for the industry. They were sort of highlighting what the risks of this are, but also understanding the potential. Um, and there's actually been a very healthy dialogue between industry and government uh, on this issue. One of the things that you described is is what I think people view as the archetypal VC activity, which is you're sitting at your desk and a bunch of plants come in and you got a red no stamp and a green yes stamp and you you pick and you uh, and there you go. Uh, how hard can it be, right? Yeah, um, that's exactly how it is. <laughs> but um, you know, VCs I think particularly like Polaris uh, on the uh, and particularly on the uh, healthcare and life sciences end of things, you're actively involved in sort of helping ideas. Uh, if you will, sort of move from zero to one. I think even in, engaged back in academic circles in, in finding, you know, base foundation science and uh, help people understand how, how does innovation actually happen? How do you get from an idea in somebody's head to a company that uh, has VC funding behind it? Yeah. So there's, there's two real ways that 
an investment happens at, at Polaris, and neither of them involves stamping business plans or, frankly, even re- reading business plans. I'm not sure I've uh, – I don't know of anyone at the firm that's ever, uh, I think, made an investment uh, based on a business plan that was sent in. And maybe as a, as a side note on that to all the aspiring um, entrepreneurs that are listening, um, you know, the best entrepreneurs can hustle, right? And, again, I'll, I'll speak for our – little community here in the greater Boston area, um, it's an incredibly close-knit community. And I think you'll find, almost anyone out there will find that you're no more than a degree or two of separation from any of the investors in this area. Um, and being able to hustle and get a warm intro to one of the firms, I mean, I, I know it's it's sort of age-old advice, but um, it really is the uh, uh, a, a trait of the entrepreneur that's a, a valued trait, um, and it's the best way to you know get on someone's radar. Um, so, so you know, that is one of two ways that um, uh, that investments get done. So, you know, someone in our extended network um, makes an introduction, says, "Hey, you guys need to be paying attention to this," and that may be a professor at MIT that we've backed before that likes us and is happy to make an introduction to a more junior uh, person there. Uh, that may be uh, a trusted co-investor. I mean, one of the, um, I think one of the differences between biotech and tech, although in some ways this is changing a little bit, is um, uh, we tend to be uh, very syndicate focused. Um, these things take a lot of money yeah, and a lot it's of bigger capital. bets. It's like the airplane business. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're, you're assuming it's hundreds of millions of dollars um, uh, that you need to um, build a, a syndicate for. So uh, most of the firms, you know, we consider collaborators more than competitors. Although, you know, we compete for talent and other things across our companies. Um, but we think a lot about syndicates, and we work together. We're in the trenches together. So a lot of our deal flow comes from them. They may have started something, or you know, they're looking for a partner and vice, for, and vice versa. Hopefully we're bringing them interesting opportunities. Uh, it may be someone that's in our portfolio, a CEO that has a contact. So our network is our lifeblood of our deal flow. And so much of what we do um, comes from those types of warm introductions because, frankly, most of those people are way smarter than we are. Uh, and um, and uh, we trust them. There are antenna uh, out there, and they're, they're um, uh, incredible feeders of opportunities. Um, uh, the, uh, the, the other um, primary... Uh, Avenue uh, is uh, we will identify an interesting area. Um, and so we, we talked about Editas recently in the gene editing space. Um, uh, uh, there was a, another uh, sort of game-changing technology a decade before that called RNAi. And, um, and in, in those cases, it's more uh, reading the literature in that uh, in those spaces. And generally, these, you know, the, 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 the sort of the, the, the Key publications in, in biotech are things like Cell Science and Nature, where the top tier publications go. And you start to, there's a pattern recognition thing. You start to see uh, thematically papers coming out and uh, at increasing volume in a certain area. Um, and you start to think that that could be a real, this could be an interesting breakthrough, a really big area. And you go out and you find who are the key people in, in those areas. Um, and often they're not people that you've worked with before, so we can't, can't fall into that repeat entrepreneur bucket. Um, but, you know, in the case of Editas, um, we went out and gathered um, five of the, the key academic leaders in the space. Um, and uh, we wanted, when, when we think about building companies like that, DeNovo, 
uh, we don't want to build a company in the space. We want to build the company in right. the space. So our right. vision for Editas, for example, was always to build the leading gene editing company. Uh, and that meant the most horsepower from an academic founder standpoint. It meant the most horsepower from a management standpoint. And it meant the most horsepower from a syndicate standpoint. And so, you know, we uh, we seeded that company with two other very large Boston-based firms. It was Polaris, Flagship, and Third Rock Ventures. And, um, you know, that was a very, it was very complicated bringing in that many different founders. And you know, as I said before, the IP was very controversial, um, and uh, uh, it, it was it was actually a pretty wonderful experience. Our three firms essentially knocked the walls down, and we operated as one cohesive group because we all go about things a little bit differently. Uh, and I can talk more about sort of our philosophy and approach. But we all had to move a little bit out of our comfort zone, in some cases a lot out of our comfort zone, to sort of make this work. And um, and uh, and we did. And they were great partners. And I don't think the company would have gotten pulled together and launched if we hadn't. So, but those are the those are kind of the two uh, ways. It's either in a very trusted source of, uh, of, uh, of an introduction, or you know we go out and hustle and try to collect the people ourselves and, and build something. You know, but to a tech guy, that sounds like just a nightmare, um, a nightmare of people issues. Yeah. Um, having, you know, uh, a uh, committee of peers management team and a whole bunch of, I mean, you know, how do you, how do you, is there something intrinsic to healthcare and life sciences that avoids the competition of egos and, and singular visions that would destroy most tech companies if they were assembled that way? I don't know. I think it's I think it's equally challenging. Um, uh, and and any company where you're bringing together multiple founders, you know, you need to convince them that, you know, the the sum of the parts is is truly going to be greater than than each of the parts themselves. Because there was a chance when we were starting Editas that, you know, there could have been five or six different companies that came out of this group of founders. Um, but you know, we got them to sort of share in, in our vision of the company. Um, and there was this refrain of we think this is the best way to translate your incredible science into important medicines as quickly and as efficiently and safely uh, as possible. So it is nice to have that to fall back on, but I can't, you know, it's not always, uh, 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 you know, ice cream and, and roses. Yeah, sure. So there's a lot of, always person personality challenges. But there is yeah. some, There, I guess the, at the end of the day, there is some objective truth yeah. at the core of it, right? Yeah. There is something, there's math. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, so you know you you're you know you can argue over what colors the logo is going to be, but uh, yeah. uh, those things are trivialized, I guess, in the grand scheme of trying to save lives. Yeah, I, I think that's right. That's... Um, got it. Um, all right. So you've talked a little bit about um, the different philosophies inside firms. What is Polaris's approach to this, and what makes it unique? Yeah. So. Um, so we, we, we think we, we, we try to take the – everyone talks about investing in people, and, and, and rightfully so. We like to think we sort of take that to a, 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 an extreme. Um, and I, I've mentioned this idea of repeat entrepreneurs a couple of times. So there's a couple of dozen individuals that we've worked with, that we've had success with, um, and that we hope to work with again and again over um, you know many companies, over many funds, over decades. Um, and we, um, we don't have an exclusive relationship with any of them these individuals. So they can go off and work with other firms. Um, but what we found, and again, you know, we go back to, to Terry McGuire, who sort of um, hammered this into the culture of the firm, is it's all about relationships at the end of the day. 
Um, it's all about um, thinking long term, you know, literally thinking de over decades about these relationships. And if we treat these individuals as good partners, you know, they're going to want to work with us again. If we don't treat them as good partners, it's a small community and no one's going to want to work with us right. uh, again. And so we've, uh, you know, we, we inherited that 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 culture and that philosophy, and and um, and and a lot of relationships that you know we nurture as our most precious resource um, uh, as a uh, as a firm. And so we've, uh, you know, most of and we we've been quantitative about it. Um, a huge portion of our capital in any given fund goes into this group of repeat entrepreneurs that we work with, we trust, we've had success with before. That gives our limited partners a lot of comfort, gives us a lot of comfort. Now again, we're always looking for that next generation, we're always looking to expand that family, but it's nice to have a bedrock of people that have, uh, you know, have run the maze before with you uh, and, uh, and and know how to navigate it. And uh, you've had good times with them, you've had bad times with them. So um, so we, 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 we really put these, this group of, of entrepreneurs and founders from and center. They're an extended part of the firm uh, in many ways. Um, uh, and uh, again, they're our source of deal flow. You know, they sit on boards, they're our advisors, they're who we go to for due diligence. And, um, you know, so that's first and foremost, it's about building relationships, investing in those people, thinking about that even with new relationships. So a company that I'm involved in starting right now is actually two local academic founders that we haven't worked with before, that we don't have a relationship, but bringing that mindset to it that I hope this is the first of four or five, six companies that I can do with these guys. Um, every step that you take, every decision that you make, um, if it's driven by that, uh, you know, you, you behave a little bit differently rather than saying, well, we want the valuation to be a little bit lower so we own a little bit more or this would be a much more favorable term. Right. Um, it's, you know, li life's too short. We want these guys to be happy. We want them to be, or, 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 or gals, to be in highly incented and engaged in the company. Um, and, uh, you know, at the end of the day that, you know, that we're going to we're going to do well in this company and we're going to do well in future companies, um, you know, b because of that. I get that. But, you know, the, um, so I went to the business school across the river. And yeah. one of the things they, they teach us is that, that you know, uh, if if someone doesn't disagree with it, it's not a strategy. Hmm. Um, that's that's your point. Um, and so. You know, I would think that that, that that approach, optimizing for relationships instead of transactions, having a pool of entrepreneurs that are aligned with the with the firm, like that's got to be true of most of the players in the space. Well, right? well you can easily disagree with it on a, uh, if you're focused on one company, and again, and you're focused on your job is to provide returns to your limited partners. Um, you're going to be uh, very thoughtful about what you know what the pre-money valuation is. You're going to be very thoughtful about the terms of the founders consulting agreement. You're going to be very thoughtful about how much equity they have, and and you should be. And it's not to say we aren't about those right, things. Right. Um, and you know, it's it's there's there's a lot of um, there's a there's a phenomena in in biotech recently of companies raising these enormous Series A financings, 50, 60, 70 million dollars. And we've been, we've participated in some of them, so it's not to say that we don't do that as well. Um, but for the most part, um, we hate to think of a situation where a founder is buried under 70 million dollars of capital and owns, you know, a percent or less of the company. And they're not going to, you know, they're not engaged to show up at the company and sit in on, you know, SAB meetings and uh, make introductions and interview CEO candidates. So, We'd much rather have them incented and engaged. And it might mean 
that we make a little bit less if that company is successful. And we look back and we say, man, we, I, I wish we would have owned 5 10% more of that, which maybe we could have if we pushed harder. Right. But when you know, we can then do the next deal w- with these guys, um, it, it, it makes, out, uh, makes, up in the, in the, makes it up in the long run. So, um, so I don't, uh, you know, again, everyone would agree you invest in people. Everyone wants to treat their partners right. Um, but there is uh, a different, I think, perspective you take if you're thinking over you know, the next 10 years as opposed to thinking over the next few months or a couple of years. Beyond the team, you know, um, what is the key to getting um, a project, right? I like framing it in that way, really. You know, what do you look for? What's the trigger where you say, because, you know, you make a commitment to these. a couple of years of your life you're going to spend kind of getting this thing off the ground. And, um, you know, uh, Bill Weiberg, you know, told me once that venture is a a big get rich slow scheme. Uh, and so, so you're, you know, what are you yeah. looking for to say, okay, this is, this is something that I'm going to commit to and, and do, not only from a money standpoint, but from a time, energy, passion. Um, what is that? Yeah. What, what, what's the trigger? Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple of things um, that um, sort of have to be part of everything that we do when we, when we start, a, uh, start a company in the, in the biotech space. Um, one of them is, um, and this is very easy to talk about, we only invest in platforms. Um, uh, and so what is a platform? A platform can be a lot of different things. But at the end of the day, it means something that's going to provide you multiple shots on net. Um, so it can be a drug delivery technology. It can be a new class of, of targets that have just been uncovered, so some new biology you can explore. Uh, it can be a completely new drug modality, and that's what gene editing is. That's what RNAi was. So these are all platforms where you look at it, you have this incredible uh, tool, and you the challenge is you have to figure out where to go apply that. And that's a whole separate set of challenges we can talk about. But investing in platforms does a couple of things. One, it addresses this. Most stuff fails. It's, it is really sure. hard. A lot of stuff doesn't work. And we just have a, a huge aversion to binary risk. And so um, there has been a number, uh, have been a number of firms, and they've done very well. It's a model that's worked well for them, so I'm not being critical of it. But for us, we don't like the idea of binary risk in more focused uh, companies. So we like the idea of these broad enabling technologies. Um, so they give you multiple shots on that. Um, they also uh, tend to enable different business models. And so if you're a single product, uh, you can do two things. You can um, either continue to develop this yourself or essentially you can sell. You can't do a partnership because if you've done a partnership, you've essentially sold any, everything and there's, there's nothing left. With platforms, given biotech drug development is so expensive, um, you have more than you could possibly prosecute as a single company. So it allows you to carve off huge chunks of either a, a therapeutic area or a bunch of targets or an application that you're not as interested in. Go to a big deal with Novartis or Pfizer. You know They'll pay you 50 million bucks or 100 million bucks, and then you have some validation from that partner, hopefully some expertise and know-how, and a lot of capital. Right. That offsets the amount of dilutive capital, and everyone's happy about that. And then the last piece of it is um, you know, tying into what do we really look for platforms hopefully if you if you pick the right technology are the products that come out of them these en- these product generating engines are truly differentiated and so back to this idea of, of pricing uh, you know we are in a world and certainly moving further into a world where me too products um, are not going to be viable they're simply not going to be viable you're not going to be able to develop them 
let alone uh, find someone to pay for them. And so um, we're living in a world where you have to uh, develop therapies that are substantially and measurably better than any current standard of care or going after something where there is no standard of care. So platform technologies often can provide that differentiation in some form. Um, but that's probably the, the, the most critical ingredient as we look at something. Um, you have to peer ahead and say, is this going to be so night and day different than what's being used today in this indication? Or are you going after a disease area where, my goodness, this is a group of patients that have no options today? So it's going to be hard, but if we can do it, um, it's going to be wonderful for them, and it's, you know, it's going to be a successful enterprise. So I think that's more critical as more critical today than, than ever before. All right. Fascinating to me how uh, different uh, the healthcare world is from the tech world. The, those differences, uh, I have much deeper appreciation for them, having spent some time with Kevin, and I hope that was as interesting for you as it was for me. How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups. Backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio, the world's leading enterprise data as a service platform. Deliver your data just like your applications and infrastructure as a service available instantly anywhere. For hybrid cloud, faster DevOps, and better business resiliency, Actifio is radically simple. Thanks for sticking around, and we will see you next week.